from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Lee Gerlach on October 5, 2015. Lee grew up in the southern United States during the early 60s, and her awareness of the racial divide awakened about the time that Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated when she was a teenager. She was also introduced to the Baha'i faith during that time, and she describes how shocked, in a good way, she was when she was exposed to a very diversified Baha'i community. Lee and Paula Bidwell together have created a website called minihoops.com. It's a Thanksgiving project stemming from heart-to-heart work to heal the pain, anger, and guilt of the past by European descendants and Native Americans. Lee is a direct descendant of a pilgrim family, and Paula is Native American. We discussed this project in the interview. I started the interview by asking Lee where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, but we moved to Atlanta when I was around six years old. This was in the late 50s, early 60s, where we were at the height of, well, maybe not the height, but we were, everything happening in Atlanta was geared to the problems with race. Mm-hmm. I must say, at that time, I was oblivious to it because I was so young. It was just it was just the city that I was growing up in. I'm going to school with all my classmates. Everybody's white because everything is segregated. I didn't know this then, but there's a programming that was happening to me. For example, I would go to my friends' homes and I would address their parents very respectively. Hello, Mrs. Smith. Hello, Mr. Johnson. I was raised to be a very polite child. But every maid on the street, I knew by their first name. So, you know, I would go into one house, oh, hi, Martha, another house, oh, hi, Lily, and they all called me Miss Lee. Mm. It was an interesting time to be growing up. It was Certainly a time when I was kind of growing up in poisoned ground, but I didn't know it. Hmm. What was your parents' attitude toward race as you were growing up? My father was a Yankee. He grew up in Boston, and he actually was the descendant of pilgrims, and he was uh, the descendant of abolitionists. My mother was from North Carolina, and she actually was the descendant of slave owners. In my family, my father probably had a fairly progressive attitude compared to the people that he was living amongst. But later, as I was a teenager and started dating, and I brought an African man home as a date, the true, true colors came through. <laughs> While he, in theory, 
was very open racially. In practice, it turned out not to be the case. That's very interesting because I have a f- interesting story that's almost so parallel. My, f- although my father grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, his parents were very progressive, and my f- mother, who grew up in Florida, was raised with very racist parents. I didn't realize this until I was about eighteen, visiting my mother's parents in Florida, and I was visiting my aunt. Who was very, very racist, and it really kind of shocked me because I started becoming aware of this issue as I was in high school. And she would say, "You know, my mother wouldn't be the way she is today if she hadn't married my father. She would be just just like me." And I said, "Well, thank God she married my father." <laughs> uh, it's really strange. Yeah, I, so I can really relate to your your situation. I mean, my mother would come out with some really wild, crazy, ignorant things about race. But overall, I mean, her heart was in the right place, even though she had been extremely programmed as a child growing up in a a racist household. Yeah. So what was religious life like growing up? We were raised in, in the Presbyterian Church. My father actually was an Episcopal, and his mother was a Unitarian, but my mother was Presbyterian, and she was a staunch Presbyterian. Mm. I actually had a dilemma around my early church years, and it had to do with that song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. Well, one day we listened to the sermon, And we came home for our Sunday dinner, and I was sitting at the table, and I turned to my mother, and I said, well, doesn't God love Chinese people? Why are they all going to hell? You know, because for me, that was the song. Jesus loves all the children of the world, but if you don't believe in Jesus, well, that's it. My mother got very upset and pretty much shut me down. Like, we weren't supposed to ask questions. And that actually was the message that I got, that it was not okay to ask those kinds of questions. Hmm. And you asked that question at what age? I think I was about eight years old, somewhere around then. So that started the uh, thinking process or the awareness process for you about your religious tradition growing up. Yes, very much. Did that questioning continue as you were growing up? The dilemma of race came to the fore. I loved our maid. She was like part of the family. And we were involved as much as, you know, people were at that time with her and her life as well. There was a time where there there was a housing issue and my mother helped her get resettled. And she would sometimes bring her children into work with her. There was a love in my family and, you know, from me to this woman. If I fell down and scraped my knee, I didn't run to my mother, I ran to her. Hmm. But as I became a teenager and became more aware of what was happening racially all around us and became aware of segregation, and I guess the big eye-opener for me was when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. I was around 14 at the time. I had actually lost my mother a couple years before, She died very suddenly 
from a blood clot. So I was watching the TV and the funeral and seeing those children, and I knew what it was like to lose a parent. I had this, like, deep longing come over me then. And at that time, you know, it wasn't so much in, in words as much as, like, this feeling of something's not right and what do you do about it? I'm 14, and that's like a world problem. And What do I do? And there was no answer then about what I could do. But it, the longing, that yearning was there. It was born. Mm. Did it eventually manifest itself into something, or uh, just was there with you for for years to come? Well, actually, when I was 16, well, I guess I was 15 when I was introduced to the Baha'i faith. As I was investigating in that process, one of the Baha'is took us to a Baha'i summer school in central Georgia. And at this Baha'i summer school were black and white people, including interracial couples. And everybody was happy to be there. And for me, it was a shocking and wonderful experience. Hmm. That was, I guess, one of the attractions to the Baha'i faith for me, and one reason I eventually um, became a Baha'i. Your mother had passed away by the time you had been introduced to the Baha'i faith? Yes. So can you tell me your story about how you decided to become a Baha'i? Well, I had uh, recently turned 16. I'd been attending these outdoor firesides that were being held in a park very close to where I lived on Friday evenings. And, of course, this was back in 1970, and um, nobody had cell phones then. And I knew everybody mostly by their first names. But I would show up every week and learn a little bit more. There was one man in his 20s who would gather up some of us and take us on outings, like trip to central Georgia. So the process just went on for about nine months where I was attending these firesides. I was learning about the Baha'i faith. I can remember the first time I went, there was a man named Jack Perrin who started answering the questions that my uh, boyfriend at the time had. And this man, he looked kind of like a cross between Colonel Sanders and Santa Claus. <laughs> so he was a real attractive guy to me, <laughs> real grandfatherly. I can remember thinking, this is the first time religion has made sense. And of course, later on, when I saw it actually being played out in real life, what they were talking about was actually happening. Uh, that became even more attractive. But there did come a point where one of my friends told me one day, well, if you like, if you like these Baha'is so much, you should become one. I realized, oh, it's time. I have to make the choice. And I really agonized over it. I spent two or three days in my room thinking what do I think about Jesus? What do I think about God? Is Baha'u'llah the return of Christ? Because that's what he said he was. Gradually, kind of over these three days, I came to the realization that, well, I believe in God. I believe that Baha'u'llah is a person like Jesus. I'm willing 
to believe. I want to be a Baha'i. But of course, at that time, I knew everybody by their first names. I didn't really have anybody's phone number. And I was kind of a shy person anyway, so I thought, well, I'll wait until Friday, and then I'll tell them that I've made my choice. But I was really happy because I had made the choice. So I went out for a walk. It was like a Tuesday afternoon in November. It was election day, so there was no school, and it was just this beautiful autumn day. There was a young man who was playing his guitar on a picnic table, and there was another young man who was just, like, hanging out beside him, listening to the music. And as I approached them, the young man playing the guitar said, you look so happy. What's going on with you? It just all spilled out. Like, uh, I've, I've been thinking about whether or not I want to become a Baha'i, and and I made my choice, and if there was a Baha'i here right now, I would sign my card. The other young man who had been standing there listening, well, he stood up and he pulled a Baha'i card out of his wallet and said, I'm a Baha'i, and here's a card. <laughs> now, you got to understand, this was like 1970, and there were not many Baha'is in Atlanta at that time. Right. <laughs> so it was kind of my, my first miracle. <laughs> you know, I made the choice, and... Wow, how well I was ready to get me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of like how I I made the decision. Mm-hmm. But you know, once you make that decision, you get tested, and and I I was tested, but I came back. I remember attending these deepening classes, and a deepening class at that time was where you went and studied the Baha'i writings and learned more about Baha'u'llah and, and the Bab and Abdu'l-Bahá'u'llah, who were like central figures in the Baha'i faith. But mostly it was about the scripture, learning Baha'i scripture. And the classes at that time were run by an African-American woman named Lillian Garnett. And there were three or four African-American women who were like the core of that deepening class on Sunday mornings, I must say they were my spiritual mothers. They were the ones that I bonded spiritually in that deep, connected sense with. So how long was your hiatus from the faith, and what drew you back to it? It was about a year, maybe from the time I was about 17 to about 18. This was kind of interesting because I graduated from high school early and started a job. And suddenly I started having like all these problems. One of the Baha'i men who was one of my teachers at the first fireside where I became a Baha'i, he had come by to check on me and see how I was doing. And, of course, all my problems spilled out. And just kind of gently said, well, Lee, you wouldn't be having these problems if you were abiding by the high law. It was actually the perfect thing to say to me. Because my first thought was like, oh, that's actually what my father should be saying to me right now. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what really drew me back Mm. was the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, he spoke truth to me, and I recognized it. And so you've remained a Baha'i ever since. 
Yes. Of course, we all get tested over the years. They come in different forms. That's right. And certainly, for me in Atlanta, the big test, I think, in my 20s was confronting my own racism. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in a diverse community, it's right there in your face. I had a big journey mm. that revolved around recognizing those thought patterns and reactions in me that came from that poisoned ground that I was born into and working on it. You know, looking back, I can say, well, it was just all these like little choices I made. I was a single parent for a number of years, and I remember... My daughter, at this point, desegregation had happened, and so there were integrated schools, but the children in her school, the African-American children, were being bused to her school. And one of the parents invited every girl in the class to her daughter's birthday party, African-American woman who lived on the south side of town. Well, I thought, great, let's go. And I took my daughter, and we were the only white family that showed up. Mm. And it doesn't seem like that's like such a big thing. You know, you going showing up for a birthday party. But in their eyes, it was. Mm-hmm. And it's those little choices. Um, there were some big choices, too. Like, I put my five-year-old daughter in an all-black day camp that was being run near where I was working at the time. We walked in to sign her up, and one of the girls who was maybe like 10 or 11, just like with this look of rage, started like coming at us. And an African-American woman just like stepped in front of her, like protecting us, Mm -hmm. and said, everybody's welcome here. My daughter was like the one white child attending Mm -hmm. this day camp. It was a really hard choice. For me to do that at that time, I felt it was important. What year was it again that you became a Baha'i? It was just 16, 1970. Yeah. 1970, okay. So it was sort of the other end of the civil rights movement where the movement was going to, from, in some ways, race unity to race independent. Yes. You didn't really talk too much about your father's religious background, but what was his reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, because I was 16 and so young, a number of the men from the fireside came over to explain to my father, you know, what I had done. I told my father, look, I've joined the Baha'i faith because I was kind of unable to explain what that was to him. These men kind of helped out and told him all all about the Baha'i faith. My dad was not too happy. So he called my grandmother later that night and told her, this was his mother, right, my Mm -hmm. father's mother, he told her that I had become a Baha'i. Now, this is the woman who's the Unitarian, right? (laughs) She said, John, well, that's wonderful. She believes in God. That was it. That did it for him. He totally accepted it from then on out. And at one point where my brother was getting in trouble with alcohol, 
he pulled me aside and said, Lee, I think it's time you talk to your brother about the benefits of joining the Baha'i faith. We'll return to Lee Gerlach in a minute. When we return, we'll discuss her project called Mini Hoops that she started with Paula Bidwell, a Native American. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.
Welcome back to A Baha'i Perspective. I'm speaking with Lee Gerlach, who, along with Paula Bidwell, created a Thanksgiving project called Mini Hoops. We return to the interview, at which point Lee describes the genesis for Mini Hoops. You and another Baha'i of Native American descent have started uh, something called Mini Hoops, and I'm wondering if you could explain to folks who you're working with and what was the genesis of this concept of mini hoops and exactly what it is? Now, this is pretty interesting because most of my life at the Baha'i, I've been working on the black-white issue. But in 2012, I was taking an online class through the Wilmette Institute, which is like a Baha'i online learning site. Also in this class was a woman named Paula Bidwell, who's Native American. She's got a number of Native American links, Shawnee, uh, Lakota, I think some Eastern Cherokee. We were just kind of attracted to each other through the class and started corresponding a little bit outside of the class as well. We were in the class right around Thanksgiving time. And in the course lounge one day, she posted this story about how she had just gone into this national like supermarket chain, and the theme was about pilgrims, and the theme was about harvest, and it was like the Native Americans had not been there. And she talked about how that made her feel. And it totally resonated with me because I felt, well, I am the opposite side of the equation. I'm descended from pilgrims. My father was born on Thanksgiving, and he died on Thanksgiving, so I guess that makes me the child of Thanksgiving. I want to do something. Thanksgiving rolled around, and my daughter and her husband were the ones that were hosting it. When I showed up, I pulled my daughter aside, and I said, I want to throw out the traditional things that we normally do, the grace we normally say before dinner, and I want to say a Native American prayer. And my daughter got really excited and was, <laughs> yes, of course. So instead of like our normal grace before the meal, I had a Native American prayer and quote that I offered instead. Now, my son-in-law is a big Cowboys fan, and the game that year was between the Cowboys and the Redskins. I almost hate to use that word. They really pommeled the Cowboys that year. And my son turned to me and said, Mom, this is all your fault because you invoked the power of the Native Americans. And so... Uh, I went back to the class and, you know, shared my experience about, you know, well, this is what I did. It was just a little thing. I offered a native prayer, and, and isn't this a, an interesting story about how it played out in my family? It really started a, an interesting discussion in the class, in the lounge, kind of around what people can do. Well... Paula and I stayed in touch, and, you know, other things, like, happened, and suddenly things snowballed, and I found myself on a plane heading out to Santa Fe 
where they were living at the time, we started putting our heads together about, well, what can we do? I went back later in May. At that time, I was there during a Baha'i Holy Day. And for this Baha'i Holy Day, Paula and one of her Native American friends, who's a medicine man, uh, had a Aniti ceremony, like a sweat lodge ceremony, to honor this holy day. It was such an amazingly spiritual experience. The only thing I can compare it to was a few years before I had gone on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The Baha'i Shrines are on Mount Carmel near Akka, Israel. It was like I had the same feeling in that ceremony that I had at the holiest shrines of our faith. And that night I had a dream. This dream I had was seeing like the world, like a map. And I have a lot of Scottish ancestry, and my dream started there where there were all these hoops. And the hoops, they were being forced apart. They were breaking. The pieces of these hoops were started moving across the world, you know, some to America, some to Australia, some to Canada. It was the breaking of the clans that I was seeing in this dream and how as these pieces of broken hoops moved into the Americas, it started this cascade of other hoops breaking. But at the same time, all these pieces of hoops started rising up into the atmosphere until the world was surrounded by this hoop of many colors. So I shared this dream with Paula the next day, and as I'm sharing my dream, it kind of triggers a spiritual vision in her where she's seeing the Lakota hoop dancer moving through his dance until he pulls all the hoops together that form the globe, the world hoop. So that's where the name Mini Hoops was born. We do have a website it's called Mini Hoops Around Thanksgiving. To get to it, you would just go www.minihoops.com. But really what Mini Hoops is, is the work that Paula and I are doing heart to heart. The website is just the fruit of that. As Paula and I started looking at Thanksgiving heart to heart, she has all the Native American pain and grief and anger about what happened in Plymouth or what happened when Columbus came. You know, I grew up with this part of the calendar, like Columbus Day or Thanksgiving, for her are associated with, like, horror. But as we started working heart to heart, going back to this story, so who were the pilgrims? Who were the actual Native Americans who were there at that particular spot at that particular time? And we started looking at the common humanity of both. And I started facing what were the greater ramifications were when my ancestors came. And she started like walking like towards the humanity of these people who were coming and why they were coming. There's a healing that happened. That's where this website came from. Really, that website is 
almost all of Paula's work. Yes, I made two contributions, but she is the researcher and artist and creative person behind it and the detail that she put into it. And it was what was released when healing happened. So I guess my wish is that anyone who hears this, who celebrates Thanksgiving, will remember the part that Native Americans what their role was, what their gifts were to us. Acknowledge it in some small way. Just honor what Native Americans mean, what they meant then, and what they mean in our culture now. For me, it's like if you call something into remembrance and honor it, it helps change the way that you look at things now and opens you up to helping heal the problems that currently exist. Lee, if somebody goes to the website, what will they find there? One of the things I love the most are our coloring pages. One of the things that we found as we were looking at the problem ourselves was how much we stereotyped each other. Paula was kind of amazed at how the pilgrims had been stereotyped as well and where pilgrims and Puritans have become like totally confused where really they were like very different people and how the pilgrims, the, that original group, when they came they and they made like a contract with the Wapanawag people at that time, that contract held for 50 years. And as far as she can tell, that's the longest lasting treaty that's ever been upheld by any people was that original contract that the pilgrims made. We have these coloring pages that depict the pilgrims in a more authentic way, that depict the Wapanawag in a more authentic way. We saw that oftentimes they were using like Plains Indians images or the set stereotype instead of the authentic Eastern Woodland Indian that Wapanawak were part of. Paula has coloring pages. One will show a Wapanawak woman offering a prayer and the pilgrim woman offering a prayer. And they'll be in similar poses showing their common humanity that each had a deep spiritual belief, but doing it in an authentic way. Other things that you'll find are recipes using the foods that would have been available at the time, crafts that you can do with children, lots of information. One of the DVDs we stumbled across is called We Still Live Here by Make Peace Productions. And so we have a page about the Wapanawag and how they're recovering their language that's based on the information we got from this CD. I recommend that DVD to anyone. It was a real eye-opener to me because I grew up here in the South, so the black and white issues were all around me and things I dealt with every day. So it's been a real journey for me to kind of go back into my ancestry and go to really the initial racial problems 
here in the United States and accept responsibility, really, for what happened. I'd like to offer a quote. This is from John Peters, whose Wapanawak name is Slow Turtle. He says, In our story of creation, we talk about each one of us having our own path to travel and our own gift to give and to share. You see, what we say is that the Creator gave us all special gifts. Each one of us is special. And each one of us is a special gift to each other because we've got something to share. I would just ask, if you celebrate Thanksgiving, please honor the gifts that the Native Americans have given us. Well, Lee, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work with Mini Hoops. I wish you success in spreading the word and getting people to be more aware of the Native American contribution to U.S. tradition. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed our time together. I did too. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lee Gerlach who, together with Paula Bidwell, created the Thanksgiving project Mini Hoops. You can find the project at the website minihoops.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
really need to make Cause it's in my own hands to shape my own fate But I feel like I'm lost when the teacher try to teach me Preacher try to preach me, but only you can reach me I know you're always there, I know you've always cared Cause I can feel that there is hope, but my vision is impaired By the clouds that have found me as darkness surrounds me Oh God, guide me Oh God, guide me, protect me Just like a wildfire Make me a star Make me a lamp Ignite my heart Make it shine in this land Oh my God My life My desire I wanna spread love Just like a wildfire Oh God Guide me Protect me Make of me A shining lamp And a brilliant star
heart sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Say God sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Verily, it's in Himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily, it's in Himself the knower, the sustainer. The omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent. Say God, God sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Say God, God sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Verily, it's in Himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily, it's in Himself the knower, the sustainer. The omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent, the Say God, sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Say God, sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God sufficeth. Verily, is in Himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily, is in Himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily, is in Himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily, is in Himself the knower, the sustainer.
ID, get a grip. Don't let them see you like this. I say I'm ashamed of mankind. But I walk a thin line, so I slip. If something's in the way, yeah, I'm known to trip. It's more than I can take. All eyes on me, and it's more than I can fake. But at the end of the day, man, all that I can say is my prayers to the most great when I'm down for the count. In it too deep when I live day to day Start to lose sleep when I don't go to class When I don't call fam back How long can I do this? How long will I last? I don't know God, I don't know If I am even worthy of your grace anymore I'm waiting for a sign But everything is the sign In reality the world is already mine I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God Make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils. Make of my prayer a fire, a fire. Kindling my pains, a fire, a fire. My God, my adored one, my king, my desire. I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface To find it, like trying to unearth a diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing So I start reading to find meaning And I see there is still something I am not seeing In between the lines, in my spirit, in the music In the very air that I'm breathing It's the reason I feel forced to write I recognize it inside me, that source of light Showing me that there is so much more to life Arming me with the fire because I got wars to fight I think about the breakers of the dawn And how they stood firm when the guns were drawn On the front lines, far from pawns Kings in their own right They're the ones who I call upon Whenever I lose faith I read the story of my name and realize it's never too late to believe And so shall my powers be I believed and he made a man out of me Feel it in my veins, the fire, when I cry out his name, oh my God, make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils, make of my prayer a fire, a fire, kindle in my veins, a fire, a fire, my God, my adored one, my king, my desire, now when the swords flash, go forward, when the shafts fly, press on, yeah, now when the swords flash, go forward, uh-huh. When the shafts fly, press on, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on.
With two wings, we can soar through the air. With two wings, we can go most anywhere. With two wings, we can sail through the sky. With two wings, we can fly. With two wings, we can soar through the air. With two wings, we can go most anywhere. With two wings, we can sail through the sky. With two wings, we can fly. I am one wing, father and brother. By myself, all I can do is flutter. I'm only one wing. I need the other for the dove of peace to fly. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.